If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we have another of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts, and this time it's on the French Revolution. Our expert for today's conversation is Marissa Linton, Professor Emeritus in History at Kingston University, London, specialising in the French Revolution, 18th century politics and the Enlightenment. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, called Marissa to ask some of the most popular questions that people are searching for online about the French Revolution, as well as some submitted by you on our social media channels. Uh, Marissa, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. No problem, no problem. Um, Now, as always with our Everything You Ever Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones you've submitted on our various social media platforms. So, um, Marisa, I think I'd like to start with one which was submitted on Facebook by LJ Horan. And his question was, was the revolution inevitable? And I, I guess you can kind of broaden that out to what were the chief causes of the French Revolution? Okay, the... I would not say that the French Revolution was inevitable because very few people in France before the revolution was anticipating that this would happen. In fact, France seemed like a very strong and powerful regime. It it was the most powerful regime in Western Europe. It was uh, wealthy, or so it appeared. It had a a big army. It, it, It was very stable, it seemed. France had had an autocratic monarchy for centuries. Really, no one was anticipating what what would happen in France. And yet there were underlying problems, and these problems brought about the revolution. So one of the biggest difficulties was uh, political, that all power was in the hands of, of one man, the king. And when you have power in one person's hands, if there's any problem with that person, then the whole regime is weakened considerably. So that autocratic system in itself was difficult. 
uh, it was a regime where a certain group of people had a great deal of power, and these were the nobility, who were the the, the second estate in France. France is divided up into estates. Nobles were um, the wealthiest section of society. Uh, they had many privileges, both. Uh, honorific and financial privileges. Nobles didn't pay uh, the principal taxes on the grounds that they were noble and they'd, they'd fought for their, their country. They had a great deal of power and they were very venal. They, corruption was an institutionalized part of the old regime. So that power uh, blockage was a really difficult one for France. But France might have continued as an autocratic monarchy for many years to come if it hadn't been for a financial crisis. And it's the financial crisis that really is the thing that brings down the old regime in, in just a space of a few years. That financial crisis has its origins partly in the endemic system that they have in France, uh, where um, as I said, uh, the nobles pay very little in the way of taxes. The clergy, the first estate, pay little in the way of taxes. Uh, many of the bourgeoisie pay relatively little in, in the way of taxes. And it's very hard for the monarchy to raise enough money to continue. Uh, then added to that are the problems of France helping out the Americans and their war of independence. So large sums were borrowed to, to, to finance that war. And then there are the problems of the court and the, the royal court and the excessive expenditure of the court. It just becomes very, very hard for monarchies to manage in the late 18th century. And in 1786, it becomes evident to the king's finance minister, Calon, that France, the French state, is on the point of a bankruptcy. And it's that bankruptcy that brings about the revolution, brings about the collapse of the old regime. Okay, now... One of the um, most popular uh, search engine queries we've had is, is a very broad one, is what happened in the French Revolution? Now, I know this is an enormous topic, but I wonder whether, it, you know, in a few minutes, you could just give us a, an outline of the main milestones in, in this enormous event. Okay. Um, short answer to your question, what happens in the French Revolution? A lot. <laughs> A lot happens very quickly, so it's quite hard to keep up because so much changes. As I said, there was uh, bankruptcy. It becomes known that the state is on the verge of bankruptcy from 1786, and attempts uh, are made to ward that off. The king attempts to reform the financial system to make, above all, to make the nobility pay a, a fairer, more equitable share of the tax uh, burden to raise money. And the nobles, most of the nobles oppose that vehemently. Vehemently. They don't trust the king. They don't trust the king's finance minister, Calon. Uh, the king tries to go through uh, a special assembly. He calls the Assembly of Notables, that's called in 1786. Sort of the, the, the great and the good of the old regime, uh, all the higher nobles are part of it. You would think that they would support this financial reform, but of course, they don't know a revolution is brewing. They do not support it, they oppose it. They think that the king somehow is 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 uh, fooling them, and the crisis isn't as bad as as he and Calon say that it is. Um, that assembly is dismissed. Then the king approaches the or has his ministers approach the um, the chief law court of the time. That's the Paris Parlement, and tries to get reforms through them. The Parlement also made up entirely of nobles who have bought their posts. Also block this attempt at. Uh, 
reform. And they say that the only body that has the uh, sufficient credit to uh, to authorise the necessary uh, reform of the tax system is the Estates General. This is a body that has not met since 1614. And the king does not wish to call it because it's it's like it's summoning something that might have a bit more representation. And that's not how the autocratic monarchy has functioned. But eventually the king has to give way and the Estates General meet in May 1789. There are many uh, uh, commoner deputies there, the so-called third estate deputies. And these men, when they meet, they don't just want to vote through reforms. They want to give France a constitution and they want to form themselves into a national assembly. So a political revolution begins. And the king vacillates and does nothing. So the assembly decrees itself to be a national assembly. The the third estate deputies decree themselves alone to be a national assembly. Eventually, they are joined by members of the lower clergy who support them. And uh, the king gives way uh, eventually to this. And so they, they constitute themselves into a national assembly. But the king starts bringing up troops around Paris and Versailles. And there is a fear that he intends to act to arrest the deputies of the National Assembly and to move against Paris, where Parisians have been supporting this new revolution. So what you then have is 14th of July, 1789, the storming of the Bastille, where the people of Paris launch themselves onto the stage of history in defence of the revolution, in defence of the National Assembly, and they uh, overthrow this this, uh, prison in the heart of Paris, the Bastille. And this is seen as the the founding moment of the revolution. Um, The king, again, seems to have capitulated, seems to have accepted things, but then in October of that year, October 1789, hordes of women from Paris who are hungry, who are desperate, who do not trust the king, march on Versailles, where the king is based. It's about 12 miles outside Paris. They go in in the pouring rain and they demand that the king uh, supply them with bread so that people can eat and return with them to Paris where he can be under the eye of the people. Uh, That night, there is uh, an attack on the Palace of Versailles People from the populace get into the palace. They have they have quite a go at murdering the queen, but she manages to escape. And the next day, the king capitulates. He goes back to Paris, October 1789. It seems that the revolution is over. A constitutional monarchy is set up. And it seems that France will have something that looks a little bit like the, the British uh, system of government across the Channel. Things seem to be settled after then. And for sometime. The uh, assembly busies itself with making new laws and uh, setting up this format of the constitutional monarchy. But the king is never really in favour of a constitutional monarchy. It's, it's, it's an anathema to him. He's been brought up to be autocratic. He doesn't accept it. Many nobles, including the king's own brothers, flee France. They become émigré. They become opposed, openly opposed to the revolution, to, to prepared even to fight against it. And in June 1718, sorry, in, and in June 1791, the king and the queen attempt to flee France in what has become known as the flight to Varennes. They're intercepted, they're brought back, but this is devastating for the monarchy. People see that the king was not really in support of the revolution all along. And after that, really, support for the monarchy really crumbles. 
In April 1792, a fateful decision is made for France to go to war with the leading powers in Western Europe, first of all, Austria and Prussia, and against the French émigré there. This is a really crucial moment of war. Everything that happens subsequently has to be understood in the context of that war that that, uh, takes place. The king and the queen had anticipated that that war would go badly for the revolutionaries and and result in a a restoration of the old regime uh, under under the uh, the aegis of Austrian and Prussian troops. But that does not happen. And in August of 1792, there's a second revolution. The monarchy is overthrown in a pitched battle in in Paris at the Tuileries Palace. The king is imprisoned. A new regime is instated, the National Convention, which is um, pretty much democratic in principle in the way that it's voted for. So every every man has a right to vote, not women, of course, because this is considered nonsensical uh, at the time. Um, lots of people don't vote because they're monarchists and they don't they, they feel alienated by the regime. But in principle, this convention is a very democratic body. And yet it is immediately faced by the problem of what to do with the king, what to do with the continuing war. The convention decides to put the king himself on trial for treason and he's executed in January 1793. And this is the first time that that new invention, the guillotine, is used for a political execution with with Louis XVI himself. So this, again, is a decisive moment. The execution of the king also brings Britain into the war against France. Uh, Spain also has joined the war. The Dutch have also joined the war. So France is confronting all these Western powers uh, reigned against it. And it's under that in, under that uh, duress that the deputies of the convention uh, decide on a policy of terror, which is, again, to be a fateful thing. Now, that policy of terror, it's spearheaded by a group called the Jacobins, who are radical deputies. And this is the most radical phase of the revolution, then from the autumn of 1792 to the summer of 1794. In the summer of 1794, on the 28th of July of that year, Robespierre, a leading figure with the Jacobins, is overthrown and his group with him by other Jacobins. And he is executed And this leads to uh, really a a cutting down of that radical phase of the revolution. After this, the terror also begins to be wound down. Uh, A fateful decision is also made uh, to continue the war. Up until June 1794, that war had been defensive with, with foreign troops fighting on French soil. But from the summer of 1794, it becomes an offensive war. And war in itself becomes one of the the things in which the the revolutionaries are deeply involved. Uh, A new regime is set up, the Directory, and this uh, that's in uh, November 1795. And this is more of a compromise regime. They don't want to go back to the frightening democracy and terror of the, uh, the Jacobins. But they don't want the royalists to get back in power either. So it's it's a compromise regime. It's also a corrupt, very uh, financially corrupt regime, and it also increasingly rests on its support from the army. And it's that which really sets the basis for Napoleon Bonaparte to mount a coup, which he does in November of 1799, the so-called coup brumaire, where he overthrows the directorial regime and establishes himself as first consul. Most people would say the French Revolution stops there, Obviously, things still happen, but they're slightly different things. 
Uh, Marisa, Marisa, you've just achieved the impossible and distilled the French Revolution into less than 10 <laughs> minutes, I think. So thank, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, what, actually, one interesting question that we had from, uh, on Facebook from uh, somebody called Margaret Lancaster was how far were other areas of France of w- aware of what was happening during the revolution and, ha- and how did it impact on their lives? And I, I guess this sort of goes back to the I- idea that the revolution was very much centred around Paris. I mean, was that the case or, or did it actually affect the entire country? It affected the entire country, but in different ways. Nobody could fail to be very aware of it. It wasn't like the English Civil War in the the 17th century. Everybody was very well aware of what was happening. Even before the Estates General met, they had a process of electing deputies to the Estates General. And that that, that electoral process helped to politicise people. And they drew up uh, books of grievances, Cahiers de Doléances, where everybody had a chance to say what they thought was wrong with the old regime. And there lots of answers, lots of answers. So people have begun to be politicised from May 1789 onwards. So, yeah, people were very aware of the revolution happening, but they didn't always understand it in the same way that the Parisians did. Paris is certainly the epicentre of the most radical part of the revolution, what becomes one of the more violent parts of the revolution. It's also the place where, from 1793 onwards, the the guillotine is situated. So it becomes this emblem of the revolution. But, I mean, it, it all depends on which revolution you're talking about. I mean, back in the summer of 1789, peasants had joined in the revolution. Peasants in in large parts, mostly of northern France, but they wanted their own revolution. For for the peasants, the problem was that they were caught up in a a semi-feudal regime where they were paying dues to their their principally noble overlords. And these were incredibly unjust and onerous. And these people were paying the great bulk of, of taxation. So they start their own revolution. It's called the Great Fear. And peasants burned down chateaus. They burned the records of the feudal dues because they hoped in that way they wouldn't have to pay them anymore. So the peasants also at that point really want a revolution, but they want perhaps a rather different revolution from the people in Paris. And over time, that divergence between Paris and the provinces becomes greater. One of the the biggest problems of the revolution was what to do about the Catholic Church And the revolutionaries make the fateful decision to bring the Catholic Church under the control of the the revolution, essentially, to make all the clergy swear an oath of loyalty to the revolution. And this is incredibly divisive and it affects everyone because everybody, well, almost everybody goes to church. I mean, there are a few small uh, religious groups, the Jews, the Protestants, who organise things differently. But most people are Catholic. Most people go to church. And something like half the clergy of France will not take an oath of loyalty to the revolution. So there becomes a a big division between uh, loyalty to the Catholic Church, loyalty to the revolution. And this brings everybody in. You you can't be unaware of this. Particularly women uh, are often very affronted by, by what is happening to the Catholic Church. I think really the biggest mistake the revolutionaries made. They also nationalised the property of the, the church to pay for their... Um, Uh, the the continuing bankruptcy problems that they had. So it was very divisive. And you actually get then in uh, the spring of 1793, a whole area of Western France, starting with the Vendée, 
goes into revolt against the Parisian version of the revolution, the Jacobin version of the revolution. And they do that partly for religious reasons, but also partly because they don't want to be conscripted or, or for the, 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 there's a levy en masse there's a, uh, to force people to go and fight to defend France. They don't want to do that either. And they feel that the revolution has cheated them, has not given them what they wanted. So there's actually what, what escalates into a civil war against the Parisian version of the revolution in that area of the Vendée. That is where the great majority of the people who died met their deaths. There. So it wasn't in Paris then, it was it, it was elsewhere um, in the Vendée. Well, quite a lot of people died in Paris, but I mean, it's something, yeah. the total number guillotined in Paris, I can't remember the exact figure, it's something like 2,700 throughout the entire period. In the Vendée, it's not known for sure how many people died because a lot of people were displaced, a lot of people were massacred. There was violence on both sides and there was fighting between soldiers. So, so Republican armies were sent in to fight against peasants and uh, it, it got very, very nasty. Maybe 200,000 people died in the Vendée in total over a long period of time. Far more, far more than died under the guillotine in Paris. And yet, ironically, it's that guillotine in Paris that everybody knows and remembers. Yeah, about, yeah sure. Okay, now, um, here's another uh, popular question um, on the internet, and that is, how, how did the Enlightenment influence the revolution? Well, it did and it didn't. Um, the Enlightenment does not make the revolution happen. As I said, it, the, 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 the collapse of the old regime comes about through a financial crisis, which has nothing to do with ideas it, it, and everything to do with money and credit, and patronage, and privilege. But once the old regime has collapsed, the ideas of the Enlightenment uh, philosophers become very important for the revolutionaries to decide what kind of regime they want to see put in place. So it doesn't, it's not a cause in, in itself, but it does shape what happens subsequently. And you only have to look at the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen to, to see that how influential the ideas of the Enlightenment were in terms of ideas about equality, of liberty, of freedom of opinion. People would have their own thoughts about religion, politics, anything, to um, freedom of speech. Um, the revolutionaries uh, instated equality before the law, which had not existed before the revolution. So, so many things they owe to, to the, uh, the philosopher of the Enlightenment. Now, that's not to say that the philosopher had wanted a revolution to take place. There's no Karl Marx kind of beavering away, plotting a revolution before the French Revolution breaks out. As I said, they didn't, they didn't know this would happen. And there's no blueprint for revolution. It happens. It happens first. And then the revolutionaries look for, for what it is that they want to do with this situation that has come to them. So the Enlightenment shapes many assumptions about liberty and equality, but it, it certainly doesn't cause, cause a revolution. Even Rousseau, who is sometimes credited, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Genevan philosopher, who's sometimes credited with uh, inciting the revolution through his ideas, he said revolution is not worth a single life. He would not have approved it. I mean, he was dead by then. They couldn't ask his opinion, but he, I, I, think, I, I don't think he would have approved, uh, certainly would not have approved of the guillotine, no. Sure. Right, here's a question on Facebook from uh, Mary Lento. Okay. And that is, could, could, could the revolution have been prevented by a stronger king? And I wonder if you could tell us a, a, a bit more about the king and his, 
is is wrong in this in this whole affair. Could the revolution have been prevented by a stronger king? Very possibly, yes. That brings me back to my first point. Because it's such an autocratic regime, because one man holds power in his hands, if he has a weakness, then this is going to affect everything because of the nature of the regime. Uh, Louis XVI had inherited a financial and political system that was badly in need of reform. This was not his fault. This was, I mean, partly partly uh, an invention of his ancestor of Louis XIV, but Louis XIV was a much stronger man. He was also a much more ruthless man. And Louis XVI was not like that. He was temperamentally not inclined to be a good autocratic ruler. He wasn't nearly ruthless enough. He wasn't nearly decisive enough. He became king at the age of, of 19. He, he said, um, God help us for we reign too young. He was very aware of his own inadequacy. There's, there's uh, an assumption often made about Louis XVI that he was, he was thick. You know, he was sort of um, uh, just, just stupid. But this is really far from the truth. He was, in his way, he was uh, an intelligent man. He was a hardworking man. He tried hard to understand the finances and the way that the old regime worked. Uh, we know that from notes and annotations that he wrote on financial documents and things like that. So, yeah, he did work hard. He did try and do his his duty as he saw it. But he was the kind of man who could not think outside the box. So when the old regime starts to crumble, he has no clue what to do. He really has no clue. He also, he, he was shy. He... Um, vacillated in courtiers to whom he gave favour and patronage. And this was not a good situation because he needed strong backup. An autocrat needs, needs people whom he trusts to be his henchmen to do what he wants. And uh, Louis vacillated about that. So he didn't give full support to his finance ministers. He was much too inclined to dismiss them when they proved unpopular. So he was, he was changing his policies, changing his ideas. This is not good for an autocrat. Uh, and it looks like from about the time of the failure of the Assembly of Notables at 1786, it looks as though he had something like a breakdown. People didn't use those words, breakdown. They didn't, or, or stress or burnout. Such words did not exist in, in English or French in the late 18th century. But that seems to have happened to him. I, 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 would, I would think there's a lot of evidence for that. He withdrew from a lot of decision-making. And this is the king. <laughs> he took refuge in overeating. He ate massively. He drank a lot. Uh, and hunting as well, which was a traditional uh, pastime of kings, and sort of, you know, not listening, not listening, it will go away. And this was really, really bad, bad um, policy on his part. If he'd been more decisive, if he'd arrested the deputies of the Third Estate, when I mean, it would have been incredibly unpopular, but for people to fight against the king, they would have had to have taken on his army. And that's that's what autocrats stand or fall by in the end. And he was uncertain of using the army. And um, yeah, that was that played very badly against him. He, he also uh, listened too much to his wife. And she didn't give him very good advice. What impact did his death have on public, public opinion in France and outside of France? The death of Louis XVI, it was like a gauntlet that the revolutionaries threw down. 
against the monarchists, against the crowned heads of Europe. It was a, a supremely important gesture that they made. They could have done other things with him. I mean, they weren't going to reinstate him as king because that would have made the whole convention, that would have made them an illegal body. So they were, they were definitely going to find him guilty of treason. What they did with him, that was that was a moot point. The, the convention itself puts the king on trial and they, they, they debate over days about what to do with a treasonous king. They could have imprisoned him, but he would have been then a focus for uprising. They could have sent him into exile, but again, he could have returned in, in the face of an army, uh, with an army against the revolutionaries. So they decide to make this big gesture, and it's a really, really big gesture to execute the king. They, um, some revolutionaries say that the decision to execute the king should be put to uh, like a referendum, a public referendum. But we all know they can backfire. And um, I think it's pretty certain that if they'd asked the wider public, the peasantry of France, what the peasants wanted to be done with the king, they would not have said to kill him. This was quite a, a strong political position. But within Paris itself, there was huge hostility to the king, huge hostility. So many people were quite indifferent to his fate. As one revolutionary said of Louis XVI, you know, we, 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 we loved him, we trusted him, but he never loved us. He never cared for us. They really felt betrayed after the flight to Varennes. So Louis helped seal his own fate with that. But the execution of the king also has huge repercussions outside. Uh, France, as I said, it brings the British into the war because they don't like this example of uh, crowned heads being lopped off. And it uh, greatly uh, radicalises the position of opponents of the war. But then the king's own brothers had done, who were emigre by this time, had done nothing to save him. Um, he was really sort of hung out to dry, I think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Changes history. I mean, historians divide historical periods into the early modern period and the modern period. And the, the turning point is the French Revolution. That, yeah. So it, it's, it, it's huge in its impact. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago um, Louis' wife, Marie Antoinette. That leads me to our next question, which is from Natty Buck on Twitter. And she asks, why, after all this time, are historians so quick to believe and promote the infamous propaganda phrase, let them eat cake, when there is little to no evidence to suggest it was said by Marie Antoinette? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on her, on her, her role in the French Revolution? Um, she plays a very important role. The story, let them eat cake, I, I don't know any serious historian who would credit that story. I've never heard a historian say that. It's one of those apocryphal 
tales that get spread and people believe it. And lots of people think they know things about the French Revolution. That's one of the things they always think they know, and they're wrong. Um, she didn't say it. So, uh, in fact, in fact, we know that because uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Genevan philosopher, in his confessions, he refers to a story. There is an old story of a princess who was so out of touch with her own people that when she was told that the people were starving and did not have bread, she said, oh, let them eat cake. So it's an old, one of those old tales. Um, so no, Marie Antoinette did not do that, but she did a lot of other things. I think, I think it's important because it shows how much legends and reputations in history count more than the actual truth. But there certainly were many problems with her as a queen. And insofar as she would have had little or no idea what the ordinary people of France were doing or what their lives were like, there's, there's a kind of inner truth in that story, which perhaps uh, shows why it was being repeated so often. She herself, she was so out of touch with her own people. She had within the grounds of Versailles, she had a little model village built, Normandy style. The Amo, as they called it. It's actually not a little village at all. It's a grand affair. No peasant would have actually lived in something like this. But here she could escape with her friends amongst the younger courtiers and play at being a shepherdess. She really didn't have much of a clue what was going on uh, amongst the people. But the real problem with her, well, a number of problems, actually. One was that she was, had a, a terrible reputation within France, partly because uh, she and her husband had taken several years to consummate their marriage. Louis himself had a, a physical impediment. She was blamed, which is something that happens. Eventually, they had children, but it was too late, really, because there'd been lots of uh, mockery about them for that reason. And the assumption was made was that she was sexually promiscuous. Lots of scurrilous pamphlets circulated saying that the queen had sex with sort of everyone. Um, um, the king's brothers, uh, handsome flunkies, uh, women at court, everyone. Um, none of this was true. We have no evidence for this. The only man that she may well have had an affair with is the, uh, the Swedish nobleman, Fersen. She certainly loved him. We know from her letters that she really, really loved him. But the, the other stuff, it was made up. But again, you know, the reputation of a, a woman in politics can be, more, can be more fatal to her than the actual truth. So that didn't help. The fact that she was Austrian really didn't help because France and Austria were old enemies. She'd been married off to Louis to, to seal an alliance between France and Austria. But for many people in France, she was still uh, an advocate of, of Austrian interests within, within France at the heart of the French monarchy. Louis himself took no mistresses. <laughs> and you might say, well, what's wrong with that? But a, a French king was expected to take mistresses. And people found it suspicious that he, he cleaved only to her, to his wife, and they thought he was uxorious. Good word. It means you, you love your wife too much. Charles I and um, Tsar Nicholas were also accused of the same thing, you know, listening too much to a woman. There is something in, in I mean, not uxoriousness, but, but there is something in the idea that uh, Louis did... Uh, Certainly towards the end, the last years, from about 1786 onwards, he listened too much to Marie Antoinette. And she wasn't the brightest button in the box. She really, really wasn't. She was very politically reactionary in her views. She advocated some very bad political appointments. And she, uh, it was she who planned the flight to Varennes 
with with the man she loved first and Axel one person. And that was disastrous, as I said, because it failed. Uh, And that helped to break people's faith in the monarchy. By the time the revolution broke out, she she would have done anything to end the revolution. I mean, from her point of view, this makes sense. She's thinking of herself, of her family, of her son. It it makes sense in her terms. But also, at the same time, she was actually... um, when the war broke out, she was actually sending the Austrians uh, the French battle plans in secret. So in that sense, she was, yes, you could say she was a traitor to France, which is what the French revolutionaries said. But when she was finally put on trial, she wasn't accused of that. They didn't have the letters, the proof that she was sending the battle plans to the Austrians because they'd gone in secret. But what she was accused of a really terrible, totally false accusation, was that she'd sexually debauched her own son, who was a little boy. Uh, Again, the idea of the woman who corrupts the body politic, literally corrupts the body politic, and she was accused of that, which was uh, uh, a terrible thing to say to her at her trial. She... um, At first, she wouldn't answer that accusation. And then she said, I appeal to all the mothers present. How could you possibly think that a mother would do such a thing to her own child? And that actually brings her some momentary support in in the court. But there was no question, really, that they would find her guilty and they would execute her. Not once they put her on trial. Not once they'd taken that step. Uh, Rizzi, yeah, can we talk about um, the terror? Because one of the questions that was uh, submitted on Twitter was, why did the Jacobins unleash a war of terror? Was it necessary? And I, I was also thinking this might be a good time to talk about Robespierre as well and his, his impact on the revolution. So terror, the policy of terror, comes about, about by incremental steps. So the execution of the king is a step on that road to terror. In... March 1793, this is before the Jacobins come to power in the convention, Uh, a decree is passed which says that anybody who rebels against the Republic and is caught with arms in their hands, weapons in their hands, will be subject to execution within 24 hours, no appeal. Now, in fact, that decree of March 1793, which was passed with the shadow of the revolt in the, the Vendée uh, coming about and the external war, that under that decree, the great majority of people are executed who are executed in the terror. It's that. And it's all passed before the Jacobins come to power. However, the group who had been dominating the convention, known as the Girondins, led by a, loosely led by a man called uh, Brissot, Jacques-Pierre Brissot, This uh, group of people are held to be reckless, um, uh, engaged possibly in some sort of double dealing with the enemy. They weren't, but people believed it of them. And to to have betrayed the revolution. And this group is overthrown under pressure from the sans-culottes, who actually, the the sans-culottes are the... uh, the sort of radical shop troops of the revolution in Paris, the, the urban workers, poor militants, and they surround the convention and demand the overthrow of the uh, Girondin deputies and their arrest. So those men are eventually arrested, and this group called the Jacobins come to power. They're called Jacobins because they are members of the Jacobin Club in Paris, which is a radical um, 
club, one of these debating groups, but they, they come to the fore. And from this moment on, from June 1793 onwards, up until the fall of Robespierre, at the end of July 1794, this is seen as the time of, of, of Jacobins um, having greater power in, in government. They are, but they never, they never hold sway of everything. And I think it's something to remember about the terror is it's a legalized terror. Laws authorize it, harsh laws, wartime laws, brutal laws, but they are laws nonetheless, and they are passed by the deputies of the convention, not just the Jacobins. The thing about the Jacobins is they're seen as, as more efficient, more ruthless, more able to get the job done, you could say. So it's not just the Jacobins who are promoting this policy. It's something which many people are involved in and which many people after the fall of the Jacobins want to exculpate themselves from. So there's this tendency after the fall of Robespierre to say it was all him. He was a leading Jacobin and people said, oh, it was all him. He, he masterminded the terror. He was the only one that did it. We had nothing to do with it. Actually, it's not like that at all. Robespierre himself is a very interesting character. He, if it hadn't been for the revolution, he would have just spent his career as um, a mild-mannered mild, uh, uh, lawyer in Arras, doing no harm, doing a little bit of good, just a very quiet, ordinary person. There's certainly nothing psychopathic about him. He doesn't enjoy bloodletting, nothing like that. He becomes involved in the revolution because he ardently believes in the ideals of the revolution, in liberty and equality. He became a deputy in the National Assembly. And in the Assembly, he promoted uh, equal rights for all, not just for rich men. He argued against slavery, that slavery in the French colonies was wrong. He argued against uh, a notion that there should be a discrimination against people on the grounds of their religion. So the biggest religious minority in France at that time was uh, the Jews. And he said that Jews also should be allowed rights as citizens, not that citizenship was, should not go with your religious uh, faith. It should be a matter for, for all. So uh, we would think of him as a very humanitarian man. In, in May... Uh, 1791, he actually uh, asked for the death penalty to be abolished. He thought it was he thought it was brutal, nasty, and unjust. But Robespierre changes, and Robespierre changes because the revolution changes. It's not Robespierre who changes the revolution; it's the revolution that changes him, uh, and he comes to accept the terrifying idea that in order to preserve the bien public, the public good, the good of all, you sometimes have to do terrible things. That's, that's his premise. That's what he's all about. So he argues first for the execution of the king. He says, even though I was before, against the death penalty before, in the case of the king, we have to do this for the republic to live. He has to be a sort of sacrificial lamb, as it were, for the republic. And once Robespierre has accepted that idea, and he's not the only one to do it, as I say, many people think similarly. Once he's accepted that idea, it becomes easier to accept the idea that other people may have to die to save the republic. Now, again, he's not the only person to think this by any means, but he certainly becomes intellectually bound up with this idea of terror. He makes a speech where he argues that, um, controversially, he puts together the two ideas of virtue and terror. 
Now, virtue, political virtue, is the idea that that uh, someone involved in politics will do everything to support the public good, will do everything that is required to support the republic, public good. Uh, but he says that, that, that men who are virtuous, that are ready to put their country first, they are too few, they are too weak, and they need terror. They need to have the ability to meet out life and death in order to stop the revolution from failing. So he says virtue needs terror. But he also says that terror needs virtue. That is, if the people who control terror are not moral, are not doing it for moral reasons, for the good of all, then they're just monsters. So he tries to justify these two things and to put these two things together. And, and this is something that has been held against him ever since. I mean, I think, you know, very understandably, because it's, it's a very difficult position to take up. But he becomes destroyed, really, by that himself. And, and he ends up dying by the guillotine himself in the end. Is that right? Yes. Robespierre is overthrown on the 27th of July 1794. According to the new calendar, they've met a new calendar, that's uh, the 9th of Thermidor. And the next day he's taken to the guillotine. He is overthrown by his own people, Jacobins, in the convention. Had they had enough of terror? Was that, the re- was that one of the reasons? They'd had enough of um, a feeling under threat themselves. They hadn't had, the men who actually overthrow him are men who have been what we would call terrorists, who'd employed a policy of terror also. So men like uh, Fouché, Collot de Bois, uh, Talion, these people, had they, they, they'd used terror, especially when they'd been deputies on mission. They were all tainted with it. They all had blood on their hands. They don't overthrow Robespierre in the first instance because they've had enough of terror, but because they're afraid that he will proceed against them. They'd already been purges of some of the deputies in the convention, so the most infamous of these is the purging and execution of Danton and his uh, associates just a few months before. And there were deputies in the convention who feared that it might be their turn. Robespierre was said to have a list of people that he wanted to move against. Now, these men that he wanted to move against were bigger terrorists than himself, and in many cases he thought they were corrupt people, bad people. But they overthrow him. They think it's going to be after the execution of himself and 107 other people over three days. I mean, a huge bloodbath of of radical Jacobins, Saint-Just and others who supported Robespierre. They're all executed, all done away with. Now, the men who had been responsible for this coup, they do it to save their own lives. It's not edifying. And they think then that they will simply take over uh, free of Robespierre. But in fact, there's a big popular movement against terror. And this pushes these deputies to stand back, to take a stand back, to disassociate themselves from terror and to say that it had been all Robespierre. So he becomes a scapegoat after his death and has been ever since for something, a, a process in which many people have been involved. And one final question, Marisa. Um and that is from Mark Power on social media. He's asking, did the revolution benefit France in the long run? I mean, that, that's obviously a massive question, but I mean, it could broaden it out to what was the, the main legacies of the French Revolution, would you say? The revolution has many legacies, both within France and, and outside France. Um, it still has a legacy. It still has an important legacy. It changes. It changes history. I mean, historians divide historical periods into the early modern period and the modern period. 
and the, the turning point is the French Revolution. That yeah, so it, it's it, it's huge in its impact. Nobody can see politics in the same way again after the revolution. And one of the things that's most important is the, the, the idea of the possibility of a successful revolution. It could happen. This could happen. This could be made to, to work, possibly, if we do it right, if we get it right. I'd said that there was no blueprint for revolution before the French Revolution, but in the 19th century, there are many blueprints for revolution, not least from Karl Marx. And they, they look at the French Revolution and they say, well, this is how it failed, this is what it, they did wrong, and this is how we should do things in the future. So it has an amazing impact. Um, if it weren't for the French Revolution, we wouldn't have seen in the same way the rise of, of so many things, political concepts that are fundamental. So the rise of liberalism, of socialism, of nationalism, of conservatism, of, of opposition to revolution, all these come about in the way that they do as a direct result of the impact of the French Revolution. Within France itself, um, there is a division of opinion. <laughs> the, the French Revolution divides opinion, and certainly people in France felt very strongly both for and against. So you see a series of revolts in France in the 19th century. So 1830, there's another revolution, this time to overthrow the younger brother of Louis XVI, that's, that's Charles X. Um, then, and that results in Louis-Philippe, uh, becoming uh, king. Then 1848, another revolution. He's overthrown. A republic is briefly set up. This is brought to an end by uh, Napoleon, Louis Napoleon, the, the nephew of the first Napoleon. So a second empire. And this is brought to an end by the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War, the, the French collapse. But also at that point, you have uh, an attempt at a revolution in Paris, the Paris Commune of 1871. So it's as though the French, having done this once, they, they turn to this idea, some of them, the ones who are the radical ones, and see this as a model to emulate. But also in France and, and outside France, you have many people who vehemently oppose the revolution and have done ever since, and everything that it stands for. It's, it's been a very divisive legacy, but a very important one. That was Marissa Linton. Her books include Choosing Terror, Virtue, Friendship and Authenticity in the French Revolution. Feel free to drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to cover in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Richard Eaton speaking about India in the Persianate age. <laughs>